We are on a mission. A mission to save and revitalize independent pharmacy. On the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast, you'll get actionable business advice. Hear stories from industry leaders. And share a laugh or two with us. Fuel your passion for pharmacy. One conversation at a time. Four. Three. Two. One. Ignition. Welcome to the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Key, and I'm here today with Marsha Bivens. Hi, I'm Marsha Bivens, Director of Marketing for Pioneer X. Today, we're here with George Lazenby. He is the CEO and co-founder of Order Insight. George, welcome. Hey there. Didn't know uh, where we might find you today. <laughs> well, I'm in my office, actually, in Nashville. In Nashville, all right. Yeah. Didn't know if we would... Uh, we would find you with a big window and a mountain or something behind you or <laughs> I would love it, but uh, not today. Not today. So welcome. Thank you. There's, uh, it's been super excited uh, for this one to get a chance to, to talk to you. Are you, are you guys in Texas today? We are. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, we, uh, we just, just got, got back, back from, from Big Montana. Sky. So. Oh, wow. We were in Big Sky for a vacation and then a, a weekend with Pioneer X. So uh, it was nice. It was cold. The first part of the trip was cold and uh, lots of snow, and the second part was a little warmer and less snow. Yeah, skiing yeah. when it says one when it says one degrees outside is uh, not recommended. I don't. It's not that bad. <laughs> you dress for it. I I'm of the opinion that it's like they say about London. There's no bad weather. It's just bad outfits, right? So, yeah. You, know, you just got to. You just got to dress accordingly and you're fine. Oh, no. My boys had layers on and they still said it was way too cold. Yeah. It was um, 14 degrees here Friday, last Friday. And I'm, I run trails in the morning at 5, so it's cold. Oh, wow. And um, my the, I usually run with a group and I didn't the group didn't show up, go figure. So I ran by myself um, and... I passed this older couple on the trail. They were walking their dogs um, as I was finishing up. And the only thing they said to me as I was approaching them is the older lady looked up and said, shorts. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was wearing shorts. I had a, you know, a top, a a heavier top on, obviously. Yeah. um, So, yeah, if you dress appropriately, you're okay. Depends on your activity. Well, and that, and and I think there's some kind of, people get acclimated. Uh, I, I know we were, uh, we were at the Huntley and, and one of the, uh, the, one of the hotels there and their, uh, ballet people are, are cowboys, but, um, one of them had short sleeves on running out to get the cars. Well, to be fair, it was like early, it was twenties that day. Okay. So it was twenties and it was sunny. And he was in short sleeves running out and get the stuff, but Okay. It, it, and it does seem colder here. Like the same temperature in Dallas seems colder. I don't know why. I don't know if that's the humidity or, or whatever. But 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 I came back and I'm like, and I think uh, yesterday it was, I don't know, it was in it the 30s, 40s. It started in the 30s. 40s. This morning and it I'm started like, in the 20s. This is cold. I'm like, really? I was in five degrees and I'm, I'm calling <laughs> this cold. So have you made it up to Whitefish? So I know you have a. Um, I'm going next week. Um, we. Um, 
the cabin that we have up there, uh, we were doing some minor renovations to it, some painting and things like that. And uh, the builder in September said, hey, look, if you want me to get this done, I, you can't come back until, you know, maybe mid-January. Just got to leave me alone. Um, so that's scary. he's not finished. <laughs> he's not finished, but he's about to do something that's critical, at least to my wife. So I'm going to go up and uh, take a look at it and make sure it's on the path that we want. Yeah. Nice. I actually rode on the ski lift with some people who had skied up there. So oh, really? talking about, Hey, they liked it. They were, uh, they'd skied there. They liked there. They liked, um, Salt Lake city, uh, park cities, mm. I guess. So just, Let's start our listeners off and our viewers off with what got you started in the um in, in the industry, in the pharmacy industry. Where did you oh, start? Okay. Yeah, kind of give us a little history. I thought you had a okay. super interesting background. Sure. So, um, first of all, I um, I was born in a small town. I'm just kidding. I'm yeah. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, um, I started um, my career in technology as an accountant. I'm, I'm a CPA by trade. Um, and I joined a company called Metafax. Um, and that company was a relatively small um, technology company focused on hospital revenue cycle management. And that was in the mid 90s, 1995, 96 time frame. And um, we uh, ended up uh, Running, I ended up running that company. Uh, we sold it to WebMD, um, which at the time, WebMD was more than the portal that you know of. You know, everybody knows the portal. I've got a headache. Do I have brain cancer? Mm-hmm. You know, whole, you know, WebMD thing. But back then, it was a Dr. much broader Internet. organization and it had um, – a pharmacy switch in it that was what it was a predecessor uh, envoy was the predecessor company okay. that they owned and uh, they acquired metafax in 2004 <clears throat> and when they did um i i uh, they tapped me to sort of run what they call the provider facing business to business solutions um and that included uh software that we sold to hospitals, health insurance companies, and pharmacy. And that was really, that would have been in 2004, my first introduction to the whole pharmacy world. Um, In 2005, we took, we broke the company apart um, and we took WebMD, the portal that everybody knows now, public on its own. Um, And I took the rest of the company private. and in 2006, basically, okay. uh, it took a it took a while. <laughs> it was a pretty it was complicated. And then in 2009, um, we create well 2007 we created the company called MDON, uh, which I became the CEO of. Um, and that company I took public in 2009, um, and we grew that business. Um, it was I guess it was. Um, less than 500 million in revenue at that point. And then um, I grew it um, and in 2011 sold it to Blackstone, um, which is big private equity guys in New York. Um, And then um, it, and then I retired from that in 2013 
And when I retired, it was about 1.3 billion in revenue. So we had wow. quite a bit, quite a bit of growth. Um, of that 1.3 billion, pharmacy was around 200 million of revenue. And I just, yeah, we grew that company through acquisition and all sorts of ways. And I got to meet a lot of very interesting people. Um, and when I retired in 2013, one of those very interesting people uh, reached out to me and his name is Mark Lyle. Um, okay. And, and Mark um, is a serial pharmacy entrepreneur. He had started a company in the 80s uh, called Zadol Systems. Oh, wow. Which is a, um, and then how I met Mark was he also founded a business called ERX Network, yep. uh, which is a, which was a electronic prescribing and claim switch. And I acquired, I acquired that business at MD on and Mark and I worked together. He led the pharmacy business for me for a number of years. Um, and when I stepped down, uh, he called and said, Hey, uh, I'm thinking about doing something else. Are you interested? And those conversations led to us founding Order Insight and another company, an investment company called Sochi Capital. Um, And Sochi Capital um, has uh, five portfolio companies today, but we're all in pharmacy, um, 100 percent. So I just kind of dove in deep. Maybe nice. I didn't know what, what I was is the, doing. Um, can you say what those five uh, companies are? Yeah, sure. Um, so Order Insights, one of them, Provider Science, okay. uh, which is um, sort of scheduling workforce management for in the clinical setting, including pharmacy. Um, Rx Lightning, uh, which is enrollment for specialty medications. Uh, Rx Logic. <laughs> which is um, a software application that runs the PBMs. Okay. So it's the, it would be like the Pioneer RX for PBMs um, okay. that, that we founded a few years ago. Um, and then uh, MedOne Health Systems, which is a, a PBM in uh, Dubuque, Iowa. And, you know, that's an interesting story in and of itself, too. I mean, uh, you know, years ago... Uh, right about the time in 2014 when we founded Order Insight, um, we were just looking at broadly at the pharmacy space and saying, hey, you know, where are potential areas for disruption? You know, where can a new company come in, do something different that everyone wants um, and uh, make a name for itself? And uh, we looked hard at the PBM space because, you know, frankly, nobody likes them. Um, mm-hmm. em- employers don't like them uh, because they typically have low service uh, to them. Pharmacies, <laughs> uh, you guys know the story yep. there. But, you know, with all the um, DIR fees and everything, um, it, their adversarial is a sort of a nice way to say it. And we thought you know, there's got to be a better way to do that. Um, and we talked about it, talked about it, and finally realized that the only way to understand that market better, to see if there's an opportunity to innovate, is to get in a fight. So we, you know, we we partnered with the Hardick family in Iowa, who, have, who owns a small um, 
chain of I think 30-ish stores um, and uh, they had started a PBM years ago to protect their own pharmacies from the big guys coming in and kicking them out of networks. Right. And it hadn't really grown. So we, we met with the Hardick family and, and uh, partnered with them to take Med One forward. And, okay. you know, it's been a huge learning experience. Uh, there's a lot that goes on in that market. Um, but, yeah. So is that's that a, my, what t- is that a Part D plan or is it just a regular PBM? No, only commercial. Okay. Uh, self-funded commercial employers. And, you know, it's probably um, – it got its start with the small employers and really the, I hate to use the word transparent model because it's been abused so much, right. but our objective with, um, with our company is to pay pharmacies fairly um, and not play games with the spread pricing that PBMs do. So, you know, we report to our employer customer, um, exactly what we pay to the pharmacy and we don't you know claw back we don't do all those things and then um and we have you know our focus is to develop clinical services that help pharmacists to help employers better manage your pharmacy spend uh, without gouging the pharmacy is the is the easy way right you know Um, How is that? um, That's in a single state. No, we have customers all over the U.S. now, but uh, they're headquartered in Dubuque, Iowa. How is that growing rapidly? Or I I don't know that I've heard about it. Yeah, it's growing. I would say deliberately. I mean, one of the things that I learned at all my years at MDI and buying companies and growing fast is that sometimes you can out punt your coverage. And um, one of the, you know, at this stage of my life and my career, what I'm really focused on is being innovative and highly focused on our customer. And so we're going to we're not going to sacrifice those two things for growth. Um, And because we own these companies or are invested with the founders in these companies, you know, we don't have any external force telling us you got to grow, grow, grow. Right. like when I was a public company or when I was private equity backed, you know, um, I don't have anybody beating on me to do that. So we're just going to choose to uh, stay our course and focus on our customers and try to grow our businesses that way. Um, and we'll see, you know. So what else is on is, is uh, coming up with a, uh... Order Insight or with, with just the books? Are y'all looking at doing any more projects or expanding? Yeah, um, we are. Uh, one of the areas that we're highly focused on right now is the opioid uh, dispensing and mm-hmm. monitoring. Okay. And, we, and we've developed um, a product we call Guardian um, because it uses digital surveillance to help protect the pharmacy um, and it focuses in areas like suspicious order monitoring. Uh, what, what we saw in the industry um, is that the DEA requires um, suppliers and manufacturers to have solutions for suspicious order management. Right. Um, but no one's really the pharmacy's advocate. And it's kind of it's complicated. You got to bring the pharmacy into the dialogue instead of just cut them off 
or the DEA just show up. But if you guys know what we hear from our customers anyway, is that the pharmacies, um, the margin pressure they're under and the amount of work they have to do, it's very, very difficult for them to focus on other areas of the business. And this is a very important area. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's just use technology to monitor what's going on and provide you alerts. Right. Um, when, when we see something that looks like diversion or we see something that's suspicious, we can proactively uh, step in with the technology and stop an order from happening so that you don't get cut off with your supplier or highlight an area of concern for a compliance person to look at. But, you know, as you can imagine, Jeff, I mean, no human can look across even 10 store chain. Right. Monitor all of the prescription activity effectively. So let's just do it with technology. So you're monitoring not only purchases, but you're monitoring dispensing. Yeah, everything, um, everything. And, you know, we worked uh, not to be disparaging of our government, but the DEA really doesn't provide a lot of guidance to pharmacies on Mm -hmm. what they need to be looking at. Um, They basically, their point of view is, hey, uh, you should know your customer. Right. You know, and you, you should know whether something's inappropriate or not, but I'm not going to give you any guideposts. So, right. uh, so we went out and hired a bunch of DEA, ex-DEA guys and okay. experts and said, you know, how do you look at pharmacies? You right. Know, when, when, you, when you used to go in as a, uh, you know, a, a police force or whatever, you know, how did you look at them? What were you looking for? And based on those uh, all of those interactions with analytics and so is this something that you'd be you'd start working with the DEA to return turn return that data to the DEA to help slow down the opioid crisis or well not really and uh, the reason for that is the DEA takes an interesting perspective you know their goal in life is to catch bad guys right and right they're, that's what they're focused on. And their view, at least today, um, is that if we work too closely with you, your customer is the pharmacy. And in a weird way, you might teach them how to avoid me catching yeah. the bad guy. I could say right. that. Um, yeah. So what we have to do is say, okay, we're pharmacy's advocate in all of this. And, and as pharmacy's advocate, who should we be working with? And we're beginning to work with some of the suppliers um, also, and really for the purposes of stopping the interruption in the supply chain. Because, you know, if, a, if, if you cross a threshold with a supplier from ordering, um, the supplier cuts the pharmacy off. Right. And then they have to go through this manual process of calling their sales rep and saying, hey, why'd you cut me off? And the sales mm-hmm. rep says, well, it's you know, suspicious orders and I'm going to give you all this information and it takes a while, but all, you know, in the meantime, that pharmacy is not servicing its customers. Right. Um, So what we're trying to do is get on the same page with our pharmacies and their suppliers and say, you know, what data supplier do you need? You know, you're setting these thresholds, but your method of doing it doesn't take into account changes in the business for the pharmacy. Yep. You know, what if two pharmacies 
what if a Walgreens and a CVS shut down, you know, in the in the town that this independent pharmacy's in, their volume is going to go way up. And so you're immediately going to cut them off. Yep. Well, if we can show you that the number of patients has increased by 40 percent and the number of prescribers have increased by 40 percent, then it's logical that their volume would also increase. And so let's just not cut them off first. Let's look at this data first um, before you interrupt a business that's moving along. Now, conversely, if what the supplier doesn't see also see is if the business declines. And so, you know, if a store's ordering a thousand pills a month every month, but they but have half the patients they had six patients. months ago, right? you know, then the supplier wouldn't know any different, but they're they're supplying a fraudulent activity mm-hmm. if they're continuing to order at the same levels, yep. you know? So that's the, that's, that's a little more complicated to approach because the pharmacy is still very much, um, they need to trust um, that someone's not going to take advantage of them with the information that we provide. And so the, a lot of the work that I'm trying to do at this point anyway is, is get both sides comfortable mm-hmm. with how it could be better and work differently. And, and you know, guys, you know it as well as I do. It, uh, health changes in healthcare take a while. Yep. Uh, yeah, I wonder, gonna... do you think, so when the opioid settlements occur, some of that money is going to be for prevention and treatment and things like that. There are going to be grants and things like that. Do you think there's any opportunities for your software there and what you're doing in, in those type of monies? Yeah, we think so. But, you know, it's just, Jeff, it's just not something I would count on. Yeah. You know, I mean, the my experience with um, public money um, is that it's way more complicated than do you have a really good solution that could make a difference. <laughs> right. And, and so what we're focused on is where is the point of value for the stakeholders that we're supporting? You know, what would make a pharmacy's life easier, number one, and what's valuable to them? Not what's interesting to them, but what's valuable to them. Mm-hmm. Because you probably know this too. I mean, you could build all these wonderful analytics in in um, Pioneer software that are interesting, but how many of them are valuable? You know, valuable meaning someone's actually willing to pay for it because it makes a difference in their business. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel that way a lot about dashboards and stuff. Yeah, or unless it's that person's assigned job to monitor that section of the pharmacy, yeah. then they're not going to look yeah. at it. I, I call it Cru- uh, Scrooge McDuck counting his gold. You know, it's, you know, there, there are some things, you know, dashboards need to be actionable, right? If you're, you're, you're creating some kind of analytic that somebody looking at, it's not going to do anything about it, then, right. then you're just wasting everybody's time, you know, yeah. sure it might be interesting, but people, people will pay a little bit for interesting, but you know, not a lot, you know, yeah. people, people want to have value. Yeah. Back in when I was running MD on, I had this saying internally, um, just because George says doesn't mean it's a good idea. Let's let's hear what the customer thinks, because, you know, sometimes you can just convince yourself this is the way it has to be. Right. And you can go, you know, go 
headlong into this long effort to put something on the table and you put it in front of your customers and they go, meh. Right. <laughs> Expecting somebody to, to do something or work something a certain way that you programmed it or designed it isn't always going to be the case. Well, if you're listening, they're all, every one of them is telling us right now, I don't have enough time to do anything. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's gotten a lot worse. With COVID, yeah. With COVID. We're hearing a lot of um, issues with. uh, And staff. With staffing, yeah. So anyway, that's provider science can step in there and help the uh, pharmacy with with appropriate staffing. Like, uh, you know, one of the things that. I found interesting about that business was that <clears throat> pharmacies typically staff heavy in the mornings. Uh-huh. You know, this is the staffing curve. And then the staff kind of goes away during the day. But the patients arrive heavier in the afternoon. Between right? two and yeah. four. Not yeah, between mm-hmm. two and four, which is a period of time when pharmacies typically don't have nearly the staff they had at, at 9 a.m. When they're pounding away to fill the prescription. Yeah. And so what we figured out with provider science is, you know, if you take that work, that available work, and you look at and you do some predictions around when the patients arrive, you really don't have to have all that stuff by not done by 9 a.m. You really have to have it done by 1.45 p.m. Right. If if that's the case, maybe you don't have 10 people in the pharmacy at 8 a.m. You have four. And those four work, and then you boost it up to five or six when the patients are actually there. And so now you do have time to counsel for supplements or do, doing the things that pharmacies are trying to do to do to earn more, you know, money, um, get more margin. How did how did MedSync factor into that? Well, MedSync is an interesting. Um, MedSync is as valuable to a pharmacy as they are as are as good as they keep up with it, I guess is a good thing. I like MedSync. <clears throat> I personally, uh, have, I'm on some prescription medications myself and I sync them because of my own convenience yep. and, and the benefit to the pharmacy. Well, and that kind of, uh, that kind of model, <laughs> that group in the mornings working on scripts that are two or three days from now. So, so you, yeah. your staffing can vary a little bit more because um, you right. don't have that big surge. That's right. Uh, the of unexpected uh, medications. Yeah. Well, well, let's take a um, let's take a, a little break and move on in and uh, talk a little about just your personal life. You say you had some kids that you taught how to ski, and and yeah. we have a wife who uh, has some things that she'd like to change in uh, in <laughs> yeah <laughs> in your house yeah, so, and uh, in your cabin in Whitefish. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so tell I us a little have, bit about the family. Uh, I have two kids. Um, they're, my son is 24, my daughter's 22. Okay. Um, and I think they endeavored to be as far away from us as possible. So my daughter's in Los Angeles. Okay. <laughs> and she's working uh, for a big music company there, which is what she wanted to do when she got out of, uh, she went to college at USC out there. There's, there's not music um, opportunities in Nashville? There are, but not the ones that are a thousand miles away from us. I got so. you. Okay. No, no, I'm just kidding. We have, uh, but and my son is in Dallas. And okay. He's, uh, I, I guess you could say he's following a little in my footsteps. He's in the public accounting. Okay. Um, yeah, my wife and I've been married since 1994. Uh, we had our two, and lived in Shreveport, Louisiana for. Oh yeah. Right. I remember you saying that. 
Yeah, uh, for a while, and then moved to Nashville, and we've been here since. And so this is, I'm from the southeast, but not from Tennessee. I'm from Alabama, um, which that was kind of a rough football game, if anybody was paying attention last night for us. Uh, but, you know, go go dogs, I guess yep. I have to say. I have a, a uh, friend who's a, who went to Georgia, and I he's either drunk right now or hungover from the night before. He has a little to be. Of both. For those who don't know, Pioneer X was started in in Shreveport, Louisiana, um, there by the the Dixon family. Uh, I spent a good portion of my life in that area, so uh, I think that's super interesting. Uh, George and I uh, caught up on a lot of interesting things that he was a part of there. Yeah, it was a fun time for us. We uh, really liked that area. That we really liked the people we met in Shreveport. They were everybody in Louisiana is very friendly. Mm-hmm. But our families kind of tugged us back uh, to Tennessee. I'm from Alabama. My wife is originally from Memphis. So Nashville was uh, close, but not too close, um, you know, f- for drop-ins, pop-ins. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so we raised our family here and have loved it. It's um, changed a lot. I'm, yeah, it's just growing by it's crazy it's just, the number of counting yeah. the cranes downtown. Yeah. Yeah, it's still like that. It's amazing. Um, and we, my wife and I sort of, we enjoy, you know, traveling, but we have a place in Florida and a place in Montana that uh, we spend, you know, kind of chase the weather a little bit. Yeah, That's a great, great thing about these software businesses. As you know, you can, you can um, manage them from anywhere. I come into the office regularly. Um, not that anybody does, but I do. <laughs> um, but um, it's nice to be able to, uh, you know, see different parts of the country. And that's, that's something we do. What, so what are some places that you've been to? Has it been all U.S. or have you actually gone outside of U.S.? We've been all around. Um, not lately. In the last, yeah. right. my, the last trip that I got in uh, was to New Zealand. and That's on my and list. It was, yeah, that's kind of a long way from here. Um, it's a bit. <laughs> yeah. And that was the as COVID was hitting. Um, so while we were in New Zealand, New Zealand closed the borders to Asia, um, which is interestingly, fun fact is that's about 30 percent of their tourism industry. So wow. it was awesome for us. There were no crowds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, How long was that flight? About 20 hours? It's 17. 17. Uh, which is, which is, can get uncomfortable after the first five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, I, I can't imagine. I think I'd have to be, I'd have to be something. So what's yeah, your, we're having our, um, our show this year, um, uh, what we call it Connect. Matter of fact, we're, we're coining Reconnect because we haven't had it in a couple of years. We're having yeah. it in Nashville. So what's some, what's some of your favorite things to do in Nashville? Well, music, obviously. Um, and the music uh, industry is much more diverse than just country. Um, but there's a downtown Nashville has a Ryman, the Ryman Auditorium. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yep. And that is just a preeminent music venue. It's small and all of the entertainers that go there love it because it has such a history. Okay. Um, and so I would love doing that. Uh, in fact, I, in 
sort of the lull before Omicron, ventured out to a concert. My wife and I went to the Jason Isbell concert um, okay. there. Yeah, and he is a fantastic performer. What kind of music? Uh, it's, uh, I would say, Americana. Okay. Uh, so rock, rock, but country-esque uh, storytelling, which I like. Interesting. Uh, and a lot of his songs. Uh, so we do that. Um, restaurant scene in Nashville is amazing. Uh, new restaurants opening all the time. So we have fun. What's your you favorite? Know, going to, I was about to going ask. What's my favorite one mm-hmm. now? Yeah. Like um, customers or vendors come to visit you. Where are you taking them to dinner? Restaurant of the moment. Well, that might be different though. What, what's your favorite? Yeah, yeah, of the yeah. Moment? yeah. So my favorite is a restaurant called The Optimist, um, which is um, a seafood place. Okay. Believe okay. It or not. And they are fantastic. Um, and then there's another just down from it is a restaurant called Oku. that's sushi. Okay. Um, and forever, we didn't have sushi restaurant in Nashville. Yeah, not um, exactly a cowboy, you know, kind yeah. of a country thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. But um, Nissan um, moved their headquarters from Los Angeles to Nashville. And interestingly, that increased the pop- the Japanese population in our city enough to where that, along with the trend towards, you know, sushi more broadly, right. brought quite a few nice sushi restaurants here, which I enjoy. Um, so that's a good one. And then if I'm taking a customer out, there's, there's two restaurants that I like. Customers kind of like the steak places. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So there's a, a steak restaurant on the top of the JW Marriott here called Bourbon Steak. Okay. And it just, and it just has spectacular views. That's why I take people there. It's, you know, 40 stories high and, the whole the floor to ceiling windows, so it's just really really cool. And then the second one is uh, called Kane Prime, and I always call it Kanye to myself because it's K A Y N E. Okay, I'm yep. Mildly dyslectic, so I, you know, I, it, the first time I ever read it, I was like, "What are these? What is that?" <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but those are the two best uh, right now. So you've had a, a, a and and continue. A, a very kind of diverse uh, uh, career in pharmacy for, um, and, and I know when we were in uh, Montana, one of the things you're talking about is, is uh, trying to get back in touch with independent pharmacy. Cause you've done a lot of work yeah. in the, in the chain space. So um, as you've done that, what, what kind of advice do you have right now for, for independence? Oh yeah, that's a good one because um, well, like you said, I mean, we, when order insight started, our goal was to advocate pharmacy period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just we felt strongly that they needed an advocate in the area of supply chain, and we wanted to do that. And the business initially uh, grew through uh, some chain customers. So we have 7,000 pharmacies sites on the system today, but there's some big chains in there. Yep. Um, so last year, I started working back or sort of digging back into the uh, community pharmacy space. Just to get a better under our our software works in that space, just like it does in the chain, but the challenges are more unique. Okay. Um, and and after listening to and seeing um, and working with the independents for the better part of last year, I mean, the, the one piece of advice that I would give them is that be realistic about what's important 
to drive the growth you want in your business. I mean, there's everybody's got an opinion about how you should run your business, but it's yours. And right. so take a hard look, take a hard look at what you want out of it and then pick your partners um, based on what you're driving at. And, and that's an, that's an easy thing to say and a very, very hard thing to do. Um, but what struck me um, was something that you touched on earlier is that um, all of the independent, what I love about independent pharmacy is that they're creative and innovative. You know, they have to be right uh, to, to compete. Um, but you can present all of these great options for them on how to change their business. But if they're unwilling to get to make the leap and and step away from the back of the counter only, it's going to be very difficult for them to implement any of it. Right. And I, and 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 again, I don't think there's a magic bullet answer to how they do that. Um, but I think it's got to start with what do you really want out of your business, um, and where what part of the healthcare continuum do you want to play in. Um, Seeing, I, I saw an article the other day where there's an interesting trend that um, some of these bigger, the Walgreens and CVS are leaving some of these smaller towns uh, that they had moved in when they were just expand, expand, expand. And an independent pharmacy is moving or community pharmacy is moving back into those towns where they yeah. had been, where it just wasn't big enough for a, for a Walgreens and an independent. So, so where do you see? In the next five to 10 years, where do you see pharmacy moving? Well, Let's take a look at what's been happening. So there's 60 some odd thousand pharmacies in the U.S. And they're they're generally broken down 20,000 in the top four, you know, 20,000 in the mid range of the grocery store chains and then 20,000 independents. And that number hasn't changed a lot. The total number of pharmacies hasn't changed a lot in any of those buckets. But what has changed in the independent pharmacy space is there's been a decline in the number of owners. So what that's telling us is that independent pharmacies, uh, well, the other kind of critical factor is um, the average age of an independent pharmacist is is near retirement. So it's in the 60s or, or late, 50, late 50s to early 60s. So you take all that in and what's happening is, is these retiring pharmacists sell their independent stores or trying to sell it to other independents. independents. Yep. Yeah. They don't want to sell to the big guys because they fought them their entire career and you know, it makes sense. And um, what I see happening is that I think that trend continues and you could, you know, it just smacks of a little bit of a roll up like a, you know, it's happening in dermatology right now. It's happening in other sort of niche areas of um, dentistry where these cottage, you know, locally owned businesses are getting kind of rolled up to try to get scale more formally than through buying groups. So I can see some of that happening. Uh, but I also see the pharmacies that are that survive are going to take uh, a, a more significant role in healthcare. You know, they're going to lever this relationship um, probably from giving the vaccines to providing other services. And, you know, the government's helping a little by recognizing that pharmacies are more than just fill prescriptions. And so maybe it evolves that way. But you said the small town thing. Um, what 
I was have I had dinner last night with some friends, and um, this particular friend of mine is an oncologist, and he, they, he and his wife were going on and on about they changed pharmacies to this new independent pharmacy, and the guy is so great, he gets to know him, he knows what, you know, knows everything about him, he even offered to bring the prescription to their home on his way home from work, you know, and. People are beginning to recognize that you can get a better level of service and that level of service can be valuable, you know, in a, in, for you if you have a, uh, even a mildly complex health situation. Um, so uh, to the extent that independence can continue to you know, beat that drum, hey, we're here for you, patient. We're not just here for, you know, to sell you some cosmetics or, you know, um, a loaf of bread or a gallon of milk. I mean, we're actually want to get to know you and help you get healthier. Um, I think that's going to play out. I really do. I, uh, one of my things that, or a a thought that I've had is that as America spreads out, you know, in, in the pandemic, when people got a chance to, to spread out, to leave San Francisco, they didn't leave San Francisco and go to a suburb of San Francisco. They went to Whitefish, Montana, and yeah. you, you know, so so when they decided to spread out, they really spread out, and th- this could mean a regrowth of some of these small towns and these small communities where people can work from home now. You know, a lot of people left small towns because they didn't have, there weren't jobs and there weren't opportunities. It wasn't that right. they were were trying to get away from their families? You know, they were trying to get there for certain opportunities. And in those towns, the 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 big chain model just doesn't work. You know, I I can't sell enough high dollar um, beauty beauty goods and things like that in order to supplement what I'm doing in in pharmacy. And so I think you'll see, you know, you'll start to see these pharmacies moving back, um, starting to see invigoration in these smaller towns. And and I think it's going to mean that it could really mean kind of a social change in in our country. Uh, as we think about where we live and where we work and and uh, what we do, so it'd be interesting to see if com- how community pharmacy plays a a part in that, and and not only as a as a pharmacy provider, but as a healthcare provider, because you know what we're retiring a whole lot of primary care physicians as well. Yeah, you're right about that, and you're going to need their help in those in those small towns. You're going to need yeah. You know, the town I grew up in was 6,000 people in South Alabama. And, you know, my memory of going to the doctor was she walked into the waiting room. You know, I had anxiety about getting a shot. So that's what, you know, kind of (laughs) sticks in my head. I knew I was going to get one for something if I went there. Um, But when you left to get your prescription, you just walked across the waiting room and there was the local independent pharmacy connected to the physician office. And I think there's a place for that now, to your point. I mean, if there's a true partnership between the healthcare provider and the pharmacy, um, with the way reimbursement's going uh, to uh, be less encounter-based and more about the health of the patient, now all of a sudden the local hospital is interested if that is that patient you know filling and maintaining their prescription therapy the physician's interested did they pick it up when i prescribed it 
you know, and, and having a continuity there that um, someone that's going to get to know the patient can actually communicate about is going to be an interesting dynamic. Um, and the technology is certainly there now to do it. It wasn't fi even five years ago, uh, but the, these guys have made a big difference in how you reach out to people across all demographics. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, going back to what you said about how do we help pharma, how do you help pharmacists grow? And we see that through um, like Eric Larson and Amina, you know, they're pharmacists, they own the store, but they're not necessarily in the store behind the counter. They're out there making the relationships with the doctors and opening up that communication stream and mm -hmm. which is what really needs to be happening. And I understand that that, that can be really hard and especially when it's it's hard to staff a pharmacy, let alone find a second pharmacist to work the counter while you're out there drumming up more business. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the communication just, it's still a matter of trying to find a way to get that better for the pharmacist who can't necessarily get out from behind the counter. Yeah, you got to figure that out because a lot of times the model and, and the reason that owner pharmacists are pretty easy today to get financing is the fact that they're the employee. Right. And you go to some of these small towns and I, I don't get a relief pharmacist. Um, you know, Eric's outside of Orlando. So, you know, it was a, a guy we got to know recently who even even buying a pharmacy, he 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 did his budget and everything to not be behind the counter. You know, he, oh, he did. Right, yeah. he, so, he, you know, he knew so he, that I can't be successful and grow it. And so he made sure he had money at the beginning not to be behind the counter while he had time to grow it. To not have to be behind the count, the, the counter. Uh, but a lot of people are in small towns. They don't really have a, you know, unless somebody traveled there to relieve them a day a week, they really don't have a lot of options for um, hiring a pharmacy. So, you know, things that help with efficiency and uh, yeah, maybe some remote check and things like that, but you still can't leave the pharmacy. But you might right. be able to get out from behind the counter if you could do something uh maybe uh, allowing remote check or something along those lines. Sure. Are any of, of your businesses focused on well, – you did talk about the uh, the PBM was doing some stuff around uh, healthcare, right, uh, on clinical services. What, what kind of stuff are they doing? Well, I mean, the main thing, again, they're at, they are advocating the employer at the end of the day. Um, so what they're trying to do – is build uh, clinical programs that assure that the patients are going to, I guess, get the result uh, that the doctor is intending. And, and sometimes that means the patient's on a specialty med. Sometimes that means the patient it can uh, pair back to, you know, a different uh, medication protocol uh, that's less expensive to the employer. And sometimes that means the patient needs to make lifestyle changes. And so we've we've uh, sort of built programs around and and tr and are try to be honest about tracking the benefit of those programs. And why I say try to be is because uh, there are always factors. It's a complex world that you get in just to ask yourself is what you're doing and only what you're doing affecting the patient's health, you know? Um, and so what we try to do is build, um, you know, models for our customers that show the cause and effect, you know, here's a program that you can implement and 
uh, we believe it'll do these things and we'll put our money where our mouth is. You know, if it doesn't do these things, then you're not going to pay for it. Um, that's the sort of the innovation that we're trying to bring is that it isn't that there aren't all these clinical programs on the planet right now, but it's um, we're only going to implement the ones that we believe are going to have the effect. And and then if, if that's true, then we're going to we're not going to charge you if it doesn't. It's that sort of thing. Huh. Do y'all use um is that do y'all use brokers or is that direct selling? Well, or? It's direct selling when we can, but it, that's one of the big learnings from being in the PBM space is that the broker has an awful lot of influence on who's sitting who's sitting at the table when it's time to for the employer to make a decision on who they want to use. And um I could tell you my point of view on my general point of view on brokers has changed a little bit, but there certainly are brokers that in my opinion are, are, are on the up and up, you know, they're truly there for the benefit of their customer. And there's a, you know, a smaller handful of them that are truly there for their own benefit. And those are the hardest ones, you know, based on how I think about, uh, how I want to run my business and my life, for that matter. Those are the hardest ones for us to work with, um, because we want it. We we're fine paying a broker a fee, for example, but if we do it, the employer is going to see that. And and if a broker says no, 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 wait a minute, then I know who I'm dealing with. Yeah. You know. Yeah, um, we'll uh, every once in a while we'll have a consultant call us and say, hey, I, I'm in the business. I I consult with pharmacies on. Um, on how to make their pharmacies better. It's what I do. Um, or how to help them open a pharmacy. Yeah. Uh, will you pay me if I tell them to use Pioneer? Yeah. And I'm like, no. No. Yeah. No, I won't. No. Yeah, I won't. <laughs> and, 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 and don't really want to do business with you. Mm-mm. You're the kind of person who's going to refer people based on what they pay you rather than what's the right product for exactly. them. You know, my advice to you would be, Provide the value to the pharmacy and your, you know, your value will bring you the dollars that you're looking for. Yeah. And if you're, and if you're going to be out there advocating a software application, if you'll come in and commit to learn what we do and why it benefits the customer and you want to represent that, I think you'll understand why we won't pay you to do that. Yep. Mm -hmm. So a super successful guy. I know you're probably the kind of person who sets goals for, for the year. So what, what are some, what are some of your what big, are the goals big you business set for, goals the, for New for Year, year. for 2022? Well, um, I am, I have been reasonably successful, but I've never been one that sets goals. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. So our um, goal is not to set goals. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do try to set, I do believe in uh, what you can measure, you can manage. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, I have, um, I don't do it in, with specific goals. So, for example, in my personal uh, life, um, my long-term objective is to be as mobile as I can for as long as I can. Right. Right. Yep. Because I think the more active you are, the longer you you live. Maybe not the longer you live. Depends on what you get yourself into. But um, at least your quality of life. Right. Is longer the the quality of life is longer. Yep. And, and so I have um, 
uh, I'm just like probably most people my age. I'm 52. Uh, I have flexibility issues in my hips and my uh, hamstrings and my, my lower back. So I've, I've endeavored to sort of do a few things to improve that. And it, it includes, you know, you know, weight shifting, meaning more muscle, more lean muscle mass, less, you know, belly fat. Um, but it also includes committing to do something I've never done in my life, which is stretching. You know, I hate it, but I'm going <laughs> to do it this year. Um, so that's not a specific goal, but it, and it's really more of a long-term thing than one year. And I like to think of things that way. And so for my businesses, the, the goal is always to grow um, because you, that's a measure of success. But our real objective is to identify uh, areas where our particular position um, is beneficial to our customer and to work, you know, I work, we work, the whole group works really hard to be in front of our customers and listen to them all the time. So that goal never changes. And um, that's the kind of the, the, that's why I don't set a particular goal. That's always something that we're trying to do with our businesses. We want to grow, but we believe if we do fundamentally the right thing for our customer, growth will come. Right. Yep. You create that value. Uh, mm-hmm. You're going That's to grow. Right. Yeah. Well, I think we're out of time. Yeah, it's been great. Enjoy talking to you. As, as always, it was great to to meet you and get to know you some in, in Montana and and to continue that on here. And I, I look forward to can continue that relationship. Hope to see you connect. And I'll be there. That'll maybe uh, maybe we'll peel off some time to go to one of those cool restaurants you told us about. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I've made a list. So <laughs> I, I've, I've already got them on my list. So Madison wrote them down for me, and I'm going to start making reservations. Yeah. Yeah, you need to do that right away, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right, George. Thank you. All right. Thank you, George. Thanks, guys. All right. Take care. Thank you for watching the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, and follow us wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us reach more pharmacy professionals like you.